The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Today I wanted to talk about how MMP is working and the Green Party's position inside MMP at the moment. Over the weekend we heard from James Shaw, the co-leader, about what the Greens would do in a negotiation after the election and what they wouldn't do. There's been a lot of uh, drama and concern within the Green Party and those people who vote Green that, what was the point again of voting Green after the uh, bonfire of the policies we saw from Chris Hipkins last week? And as James Shaw said in his speech, there were those who were saying, why don't you just walk away from the government? His argument was that uh, the Green Party MPs who had been in government or in cooperation with Labour or in a cooperation agreement with Labour between 2017 and 2023 had achieved some gains, particularly in that first term when there were uh, uh, more opportunities to exert leverage of course, in the second term, Labour has had a full majority and therefore didn't need the Greens at all. In fact, the Greens were living off scraps, you could argue, in a way, and were lucky, if you like, to get the climate change and domestic violence uh, ministries, albeit outside Cabinet. And remember, that's the key thing here, is that the Greens have been outside Cabinet in both terms of Parliament. Now, it's worth having a look at whether the Greens have leverage, i.e. whether the vote actually makes a difference. Because after the bonfire of the policies last week, where a lot of the climate change policies in particular uh, have been dumped, and a couple of non-climate change policies that the Greens had been working on for years were also dumped unceremoniously, people are wondering, uh, what's the point of that? Well, uh, James Shaw has uh, pointed out, and others, uh, including uh, Julian Genta, have said, well, um, there was two different situations in 2017 and 2020. In 2017, New Zealand First, who had credibly threatened to go either way, if you like, were able to extract four ministerial positions inside Cabinet, including, of course, Winston Peters as the Deputy Prime Minister. And that gave uh, the New Zealand First uh, more power. And the problem here is that the Greens are not able to credibly threaten to go with National because its own members uh, won't allow it. And there is also less of a risk that the Greens choose to sit on the cross benches, so to speak, be in opposition, and not pledge confidence and supply support to Labour. In theory, they could pledge to abstain, i.e. not vote for National and Act as well, 
But that would create uncertainty for anyone wanting to go to the Governor-General to pledge that they have the support of enough votes in Parliament to maintain supply and confidence. And in theory, the Green Party could also be criticised by its own members for um, allowing a national and act government, not by commission, i.e. formally joining it, but by omission, uh, choosing to abstain. So it's not necessarily the solution it would appear. For the Greens, that's the real issue here, is that by pledging to never, never, never go with national and act, they dilute some of their leverage and power with Labour. However, it all depends, of course, on the exact numbers that come out after the election on October the 14th, in particular whether New Zealand First gets back in, and with the current poll results showing 3 or 4%, that seems unlikely, although still possible. Whether or not top get in, that will depend on largely whether Raf Manji, the leader of top, wins the seat of Ilam, and of course whether and how many seats Te Pāti Māori get. It's quite likely they're going to get two electorate seats, but the question of how many more depends on the size of their vote share. And then, of course, it depends too on how many MPs and shares of the vote that Labour gets. So it's all speculation at this point. But what the last week has emphasised is that the Green Party will need to convince its voters that it can make a difference if it gets into government with Labour. Because the example of the last week to 10 days has shown they may not get much at all. And by choosing to support Labour with supplying confidence, it runs the risk of diluting its ability to call for much more aggressive climate change and poverty reduction progress. Well, I'd like to welcome Julianne Genta to When the Facts Change. Uh, Julianne is the Greens Transport and Infrastructure Spokesperson, and this week we had some huge news out of the government on its plans for dealing with climate change, with transport, uh, emissions reduction, and it caused quite a stir. So, uh, Julianne, could you say... What was your view of the announcements that came out on Monday afternoon from the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins? Kia ora, Bernard. I'd say it shows exactly why it's so important in this election that the Greens increase their vote so that we have greater influence on the next government. Only the Greens are going to prioritise the climate action we need. And the announcements from the government included the the removal of the so-called cash for clunkers scheme, which was almost $600 million worth. Um, What did you think of that scheme? Because on the face of it, it sounded like a good idea, get rid of all these um, old belching cars and get people into maybe hopefully lower emissions cars or public transport. It's really important that the government reprioritise this is that money towards things that will have meaningful emissions reductions and will help with social inclusion. So as we transition to, um, you know, a way of life that is less reliant on fossil fuels, it's 
going to hit those families who are struggling, have lower incomes and less, fewer assets more. And it's really important that government prioritizes them. And I guess that was one of the driving factors for the clean car upgrade was really focusing a policy on people who are lower income and who may be forced to drive older, less efficient vehicles. Um, you know, that said, I do think there were challenges with that policy, and it's it's quite possible that that money could be used in ways that would be better for the climate and and for social inclusion. Six hundred million dollars. It is quite a bit of money. I mean, how many tons of emission savings could it have bought? And and maybe there is some other way you could use that six hundred million dollars to effectively buy. Uh, more uh, emissions reductions. It certainly will be arguing to the government for uh, using that money to invest in things that will help people, you know, whether that's more home insulation or investing in our passenger rail network, which needs significant investment. Um, We've been campaigning for investment in the Lower North Island trains because if the government doesn't come to the table with $350 million, uh, a few years down the track, we're going to have an absolute crisis on the Lower North Island train lines. And so that's like between Palmerston North and Wellington and the Wairarapa. So um, that's an example of something where the Greens have been pushing really hard for investment. The regional councils have actually already committed funding to it and Wakakotahi, and they're just waiting for crown funding and it missed out last budget. So that's an example of something that I would strongly argue if the government's not going ahead with a clean car upgrade now, they, they need to get on with fronting the money so that the regional councils can make the train orders so that we not only maintain the level of service we have now, but massively improve it. And what would the money be spent on? Because um, we're often told that, you know, building rail lines and and uh, and the likes is incredibly expensive, and we don't have enough people to do it. And um, and also, there's the the sheer carbon emissions that happen when you do a whole bunch of concrete and steel and digging. But for the people that will be able to move, it's it's relatively low carbon embedded and otherwise relative to say building a motorway, um, which requires even more land and more. Um, fossil fuel intensive materials. Uh, and then it, and then on top of it, you need vehicles to drive on them. Um, so I, like the rail, this is really interesting, Brennan, because, you know, when Labor announced the New Zealand upgrade program back in 2020, um, I was very critical of that program. It didn't focus on the right projects from my point of view and was the first sign that Labor wasn't really as committed to climate action as their rhetoric. Um, but one thing the Greens did secure, and this was only because of us, was a couple hundred million for track improvements in, in that lower North Island area and money for the business case for what we now have, which is a proposal to purchase additional trains, which would massively, I mean, like total step change in the level of service. So right now there's one train once a day um, just in one direction from Palmerston North to Wellington. So it goes from Palmy to Wellington in the morning, goes back to Palmy in the evening, and that's only Monday to Friday. It's a very well-subscribed service, but imagine how much more convenient it would be for people if it was four times a day, you know, you could, and you could go in both directions. So you could go from Wellington to Palmerston North in the morning or the other way. Um, same with the wire wrapper lines. Those uh, trains are, are really at capacity already and they need to be replaced. 
So, so the money that we need now is really to purchase the trains. The track work's already been done. The other announcement was the um, so-called staging uh, of the Auckland's so-called light rail line from what was going to be from the Auckland CBD all the way to the airport. It's not exactly clear to me which stages are going to be done or when. The Prime Minister suggested that it could take 40 years for it to be completed. He referred to the time it had taken for the Waikato Expressway to be built between 1993 and 2023. Uh, Surely the government um, seeming to uh, scale back on its commitment to a major rail line in Auckland is a blow for um, the government's uh, climate hopes. What did you think of of that move? I I do think there's an opportunity, and it's not yet one, but unfortunately the Labour government has really gone off the rails, pun, um, when it comes to Auckland Light Rail, because what they're proposing now is this tunneled light rail option, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it's higher carbon, more costly, more complex, Um, And the tunnel is never actually needed in the isthmus. So it's unclear why they've gone down that route. So there is an opportunity to improve the project and and deliver it uh, faster. I am concerned that the Prime Minister is talking about 40 years just uh, for this particular route. What the Greens would love to see is surface light rail, which was what was originally proposed back in 2017. um, And that, that you could get on with that and be delivering a viable service between Matt Roskill, Wellesley and the city centre within five years and then have a staged uh, rollout of light rail networks, you know, right across the city. So, you know, eventually you'd go to the airport, you'd um, do the Northwest Line and the North Shore Line. And and yeah, it would be a 30-year program of um, improving rapid transit in the city, that's a kind of normal time frame. But it wouldn't take 30 years to do one line. It would be 30 years of um, delivering multiple lines and increasing the capacity of them over time. And eventually, you know, looking at possibly tunneling under the city centre in 20 or 30 years when those three lines come together and the patronage requires it to increase frequency. So th- this was a um, a surprise for uh, a few people uh, to, to hear a government which had talked about climate change as its nuclear-free moment and which has signed up to the um, Zero Carbon Act, um, has talked uh, a pretty big game about a climate emergency. The, 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 I seem to recall there was actually a declaration in Parliament and it seems that all of the announcements in this reprioritisation uh, this week have been about reducing spending on uh, efforts to uh, uh, reduce emissions and all to save about $1.7 billion, a good chunk of which will go to extending fuel tax cuts, in effect uh, encouraging uh, more burning of petrol and diesel, uh, although the Prime Minister uh, rejected the official advice that was given him to say that uh, this would increase emissions. Um, and, of course, the other uh, purpose of reducing the spending is so that the government doesn't have to borrow more. Um, I mean, how, how do you, as a Green MP, which uh, doesn't have a formal coalition but has a partnership agreement with the government, how do you feel about the, the government um, taking these steps? I noticed that 
James Shaw, the climate change minister, and the and with his other hat on, the co-leader of the Greens, described uh, his feeling as um, pissed off and disappointed, and um, that it was quite driving him nuts. According to a, an interview he did for the spin-off, um, how, how did you feel in your gut in a way when you heard about all these announcements? Well, since twenty twenty, I've been repeatedly disappointed by Labour and the Labour government. And that's why it was such a tragedy that they got a majority in 2020, because they may mean well, and there's a lot of good people in their caucus. But when it comes down to it, they've only recently come on board with recognising climate change as a major issue and something we need to do something about. The Greens are really the only party in Parliament who have really understood the threat posed by climate change and the positive solutions that we can embrace to address climate change, address other environmental challenges and inequality. And that's, you know, we've been doing this for 30 years. When we had a shot in government, we have been incredibly effective. But until we have real power, and that means more MPs, uh, more ministers and leverage over labour, uh, we're not going to see the sort of transformation that I think a lot of New Zealanders are now recognising they want. Taking a, a, a devil's advocate um, position here with my horns on and a, and a, and a big wavy tail, uh, um, what's the point? What's the point in, of being anywhere near labour when they've force the Greens to swallow rats like this and humiliate them in public, not even consult them until the last minute, effectively take take the Greens for granted and um, in the process, whether, whether this is the plan or not, essentially sideline the Greens into uh, uh, a position where they can't really criticise the government with um, with bells on. Well, I too, Bernard, would like to see a Green government, a Green majority government. Um, and that's probably why I joined the Greens back in 2007 and ended up campaigning for them and eventually becoming a member of parliament. Because I, I believe that this party has the right solutions. And I've been frustrated that the two larger parties in New Zealand um, don't seem to be able to show leadership on this issue. Um, what I would say is that the National Party is even worse than Labour. So Labour at least, you know, are trying. The National Party is actively campaigning against any solution, you know, and they make it harder for Labour to do the right thing. So I would say a, the National Party is a big part of the reason why the Labour Party is walking back on these things, because they're worried about the negative political nonsense coming out of National Enact. Um, and they're worried that's going to hurt them in the election. Now, all the Greens can do is continue uh, campaigning on the issues we care about, which we do. I think I regularly and James and everyone else in the Green Party is very honest about our assessment of Labour's ineffectiveness in both addressing inequality and uh, transforming the economic system and addressing climate change and environmental issues. So I, I don't think we have had to hold back. Um, I think we're basically saying the same things we'd be saying if we weren't in a relationship with Labour. Um, but having that relationship does mean that we do get some positive wins. Is there a risk, though, that the Greens are effectively greenwashing Labour with that partnership? Um, I don't think so, because 
If you look at the polls, people are increasingly saying that government does need to do more about climate change. Um, and they don't think the government's doing enough. And the Greens are repeatedly saying over and over again, uh, we need to go further, faster. We need to do far more. We actually need to do way more. And Labour is now a handbrake. And the only other parties who are likely to form a government or in a position to really form a government are National and Act, who are, I mean, last century, they're, they're so bad <laughs> that it's not even worth thinking about. Like, we would... You know, they're actively campaigning against any any potential solution. So for those Green voters out there who might be listening and thinking that, um, you know, I vote Green because I like the policies and I genuinely hope that they get more than 50% of Parliament or at least more MPs than Labor, but if they get less MPs than Labor, and we've just been told again that the Greens would never go with national how is my vote exercising any leverage for those policies? Because Labor surely can just take the Greens for granted and go, well, you're going to support us anyway. We don't have to do anything you want. Firstly, the Greens have managed to secure a bunch of wins. And the only meaningful policies that have been brought in that are leading to environmental protection and emissions reduction have come from the Greens, aside with one exception, which is the freshwater standards from David Parker. Um, and, but the Greens would have done that. It's just he was Minister for the Environment. We didn't get a look in. So um, uh, the Greens have repeatedly won on issues simply through running campaigns and through, um, you know, being around the table and making a good ar argument. Like yesterday, I got the government to pick up an extension to an exemption for fringe benefit tax on um, micromobility vehicles and services. Um, and, it, you know, they didn't vote for that and pick it up because they needed me to vote for anything. They just said, actually, this is a good idea. Julianne's made a good case. 400 people came and submitted to the select committee about it. So that's the importance of public campaigns. And the more green MPs we have, the more resources we have to campaign on issues. So no matter what happens with government, if we have more MPs, we can put that into public campaigns and put pressure on whoever's in government to do the right thing. But being around the table is the most effective, fast way to make meaningful change to get rid of some of the barriers in central government. And that is because New Zealand's government system is so centralized. And I mean, this would be something that the Greens would absolutely criticize and say, one of the most effective things we could do is push more of that power and decision-making out back to communities, empower and fund local government to make more decisions, make local government more democratic and more representative. Um, don't centralize everything. But right now, so much is centralized. There's so much power held by ministers that having ministers is one of the fastest and most effective ways to make changes. And we saw that last term. So, you know, even ministers outside cabinet um, we're, Eugenie Sage, James Shaw and I, and Jan Logie as an undersecretary, were able to uh, really make a huge difference in how the public service was organizing their work and, some, and we were able to push forward solutions like the fuel economy standards and fee-bait, which has had a massive impact. Probably the single most effective thing the government's done on climate change so far would not have happened if I had not been a minister. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. 
Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Can you give us um, a sort of an inside look at, you know, how these policies get formed and what you had to do, um, you know, at the table, behind the scenes to get that policy in um, to, you know, because a lot of people, when they hear that phrase, you know, we've got to be at the table, uh, we think we can get things done, you know, in when we're there in the room and we can, you know, write the clauses and put it in the performance agreements. You were Associate Transport Minister in that first term. And um, how how did you get through that clean car rebate scheme and the uh, emission standards in a way that, you know, now there's um, Tesla was the second or third most sold car in the last uh, six months or so. But can you just... Explain for people who've you've heard it pays to be at the table, and then they see something like what happened on Monday and go, ah, why don't you just jump into opposition and have a really good crack at them? Well, I think we're having as much the exact same crack at them we would be having if we didn't have ministers, right? I mean, that we're not silenced from criticizing them. Um, I think it's we all we do have to be mindful that we don't want the public to think that we're just being, um, what's the word, like frivolous or, or overly, you know, it's it's like not, a lot of people don't like too much criticism. So you've got to do it in a constructive way that it's not, you know, we just want to see positive solutions. And frankly, they're not, they're not putting them forward. So when it came to the clean car standard and discount, I had, I was the associate minister. I, I got to have a bit of influence over the whole transport policy, but ultimately I was working side by side with a labor minister and he had the final say on on a lot of things. Um, so I had to make a change where, you know, I had to convince him for anything I wanted to do. And I was responsible for the emissions reduction sub program of the Ministry of Transport. And basically for a policy like 
the clean car standard and discount. The public service has to do a whole lot of work to figure out the legislation, how it's actually going to be administered. Um, they have to do a cost-benefit analysis and a whole lot of research ahead of time. And they hadn't done anything in this space. I got them to do the work, but I have to say that the prime minister's office at the time was very nervous about it and told the minister of transport to shut it down. And I had to keep saying, no, 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 because they were worried. There was a common misconception out in the public that um, it would be regressive and hurt poor people. And we had to do the analysis to show that was not the case because the only people buying new to New Zealand vehicles are pretty well off or businesses. Um, and so the only people really affected by the policy are actually average to well off. And what this does is it keeps the price signal within those people who are bringing cars into New Zealand. And it actually affects the suppliers. So it, it, it doesn't just affect buyers, it affects the supply of vehicles available to New Zealanders. So in a way it gives them more choice for low emissions vehicles, which is great because it means they spend less money on petrol as well. So it, we were able to show that the marginal abatement cost was negative. So not only are we reducing carbon with this policy, we are saving the country money, um, but I we had to get the work done. And then I had to convince um, you know, the people in labor that this, this was a really important policy that if we didn't do it, there was no way to really change the speed at which we were getting EVs into the fleet and low emissions vehicles. And, uh, and then I had to front it on my own. You know, I wasn't backed up by the PM or anyone. I had to front it and sort of sell it in the media. And it did become the subject of a attack campaign from National. What's interesting is Simon Bridges even wrote in his book that there were some people in National I had convinced to support the policy. I said, at least don't attack us for it because this needs to happen. And, so, and some people did want to, but Simon Bridges saw a populist opportunity to um, get a lot of likes on Facebook by attacking me and um, protecting the status quo. And, uh, you know, it didn't win him the election. It didn't help him in any way, but it did kind of set the debate back. So that's an example of how National is a bad faith actor in this. Uh, luckily, we got enough of a positive reception in the media that Labour decided it was worth doing. And then the public service carried on and actually convinced the next minister to do it, even though it wasn't in Labour's manifesto. But the work would not have been done if I had not been there. So you pointed out, well, the um, the political games that get played and the opportunism to an extent and the... Um the, the performance aspect of the politicians, you know, um, ute taxes, all of that stuff. But there is another force to maintain the status quo, which is behind the scenes, the um, officials, the bureaucracies, the departments, who are often quite closely connected, um, understandably, to the industries that they regulate or serve and sometimes do both at the same time. And uh, could you give us a flavour of how, you know, even if you've got an idea and the voters have said, yep, go for it, and you're a, an, a minister or an associate minister, some, sometimes um, there's a yes minister approach, which means that it really means no minister. Yeah, I think I have been pretty public about the fact that um, it's not enough to get elected. You also have to be able to get these institutions to implement the policy and support it and work in favour of it. And that is not evident to everyone. And that probably does slow down some changes. Um, I was just thinking of another example, which is um, sometimes, you know, back when I first joined the Greens, um, 
they would often talk about the home insulation fund they got under national through an MOU as a big win that they got not being in government. But the reality is that that fund and that program had been developed by Jeanette Fitzsimons as a ministerial spokesperson in a kind of cooperation agreement the Greens had from 2005 to 2008, which is very similar to the relationship that we have with Labour now, except that our co-leaders are ministers rather than just um, government spokespeople. Um, so she was kind of like a pseudo minister, but not a real one because Winston wouldn't have it, um, which gave her some access to the public service, but not as much as a minister would have. And she developed that program and bid for a budget of a billion dollars for home insulation, which was granted in the 2008 budget. But then, of course, Labor lost the election and National said they were going to cancel it. But when the GFC hit, um, they realized that they needed something to support the building industry. And that's how Jeanette and the Greens got this 300 million home insulation fund. So my point would be that we didn't we didn't get that just from the Greens campaigning in opposition. We got it, we needed access to the public service for the program to be developed. And that is probably the case for why we should continue having ministers in a kind of relationship, even though we don't have as much leverage as we would like in this government, because it does give us the access to the public service, which means it's possible to develop programs that will be faster to roll out, will be in a better position to make change when we are in government after the 2023 election. So, so why not keep open the option of, uh, if not forming a government with, then having some arrangement with national if only to give you more leverage in the negotiation after the after the election, assuming, of course, that you have fewer MPs than Labor, uh, I, I'm just trying to get my head around why you wouldn't do a Winston Peters, you know, uh, maybe I'll go here, maybe I'll go there. Well, you know? It's so interesting. So the assumption is that we would have more leverage, and I can understand from a game theory perspective why you might think that. But that's only true if you if you think it won't have any impact on our vote. Um, because ultimately the size of our vote is hugely influential in how much, how likely it is Labor needs us and how many MPs and ministers we could have. Because, you know, the vote is kind of what gives us a proportion relative to the other parties in Parliament. And um, what we understand really well now, and, you know, I understand where you're coming from here. It seems like, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be smarter if you could just go to national? But if we did that, there's a whole lot of voters we would potentially lose and it wouldn't be worth it. And if you look at Winston Peters, who plays off both sides, he has a bit of power for one term and then he's out the next term because he's pissed off half his voters when he went with Labour. And it was the same before. It's like every time Winston's been in government, he's out the next term. And that's and some of the other parties, you know, Tapati Mari, um, you know, managed to get a few wins under that national government, but they also were out of parliament by the end of it. They diminished in size every election until they were out for a term. And they've made a comeback now, but they, you know, they're only polling in the two to three percent range, uh, which is similar to top um, top last term. You would think at the 2020 election with national going down to an almost historic low, 26 percent, the quote unquote blue green party who was willing to, you know, potentially work with them, um, only got one and a half percent of the vote. So I just don't, it just doesn't seem like it's the case that we will maximize our vote um, if we're if we're saying, oh, really, we're as willing to support a national government as Labour. Because the reality is, national's policies are so bad on the environment. They're so opposite to ours. 
that our voters can't imagine how we could possibly consider working with them. But they're not a, a party of policies. They're a party of government. Um, if they can't get into government, um, they'll find some other policies that mean that they can get into <laughs> to government. And I, I wonder whether um, by ruling out national uh, forever that in a way that shapes the policy options that National puts forward. I I, do, I take issue with you saying that we've ruled them out forever. We haven't. Our political statement, our political positioning statement says we'll work with any party um, that has a close enough alignment in values and policy. And um, it's just at the moment the National Party clearly isn't, you know, if their policy moved and their actions and their values moved, then we would probably be in a different situation. But the reality is we're dealing with people who have shown they're totally against any meaningful climate action, and they behave in the political sphere in a really counterproductive way that's basically the opposite of the Greens' values. So I, I think voters don't think it's realistic. However, we do have leverage, and that leverage comes when Labour needs us to form a government. The first rule of politics is learn to count. And unfortunately, up until now, the Greens have just slightly missed out because in 2017, it was Labour and Greens versus National, New Zealand first. Um, so we didn't have as much leverage because we had New Zealand first there. And in 2020, Labour got a majority. But if it had been different and Labour had gotten 48%, uh, in 2020, we would have seen a totally different government this term because they would have needed us. And we've already shown that we can get a lot without that leverage. Imagine what we could get when we have that leverage. I'm just wondering, though, whether at some point in, uh, if not frustration, then, um, you know, an attempt to show people this is an actual crisis that needs much faster policy gains, that leaving the or or um, exiting the uh, cooperation agreement with National, going on to the crossbenches, effectively saying, uh, if you want um, our support, you'll need to win it uh, legislation piece by legislation piece, would actually uh, make more difference and, in the eyes of the voting public, um, show that you and not just opposed to Labor's policies, but opposed to Labor itself, given that um, Monday's announcements, which didn't involve much consultation, uh, really do just dump it all. Ultimately, it is the case that they have to win our, there's our support legislation by legislation. I mean, like our current situation is that Labor can do whatever they want because they have 64 MPs and you only need 61. So they don't, we don't automatically give them support for anything. Um, so I, I'm just a bit confused by the question. I, I think that what people are frustrated about is that the Greens don't have more power, and we too are frustrated by that. But you have to understand the maths of Parliament to understand this is, this is out of our control. Um, how the votes fell last time was out of our direct control. What is in our control is um, the work we do campaigning, uh, the statements we make, I think we've been very clear for 40 odd years now about the imminent threat caused by climate change and ecological collapse and that we need a total transformation to our economic system. And um, the best thing we can do is get, you know, 15 percent of the vote or more. You know, I'd love to see more um, and be in a position to hold a lot of sway and leverage in the next government. But wouldn't that ultimately mean you'd you'd really have to 
give Labor an assurance on supply and confidence, even if you were sitting on the crossbenches on other legislation? Um, no, no. I mean, I think that we would have more direct influence if we had ministers in cabinet for the reasons I outlined before, um, which is that ministers in New Zealand have you know, a whole lot of direct influence and power. And, and we used that previously. And to the extent, you know, probably James and Manama are doing that now on a whole lot of little issues that you wouldn't know about. But um, that we would not give them confidence and supply unless we had secured enough gains and we would be at a position to walk at any moment if they didn't keep to the deal. And the more votes we have, the more we can go to negotiations and say, well, we need, you know, six ministerial posts or eight ministerial posts, and we need these legislative and policy wins, and we need this much budget. The more votes we get, the more budget we can argue for. Um, and and we don't have to support Labour. If we don't get a good enough deal in negotiations, we won't. So that means you wouldn't support Labour, but you also wouldn't support National the way the numbers are going to fall at the election, no one's going to have a majority, right? And ultimately, um, we'll have to see what the election results are. But um, we, we, Labour certainly won't be able to take our support for granted. We will be looking for transformational policy, just as we always have. But we'll be in our most powerful position ever, um, and certainly far more powerful than a party that might not get into parliament <laughs> um, or a party that's only on two or three percent and doesn't have that experience of being in government. Just finally, and, and stepping back a bit from the point of view um, of perhaps someone who's young, hasn't been around watching MMP for a while, um, can see the you know clear and exceptional danger of climate change and is incredibly frustrated that this housing crisis, which people have talked about for a decade, has actually gotten worse. And they're going, so we've, we've got this MMP system, which seems to result in the most incremental and tiny of change and seems to have weaponized the power in the system with the status quo. How on earth can we respond to, you know, a, a real crisis and actually do significant policy change with this political system, MMP, that we have at the moment. Maybe we should go back to first past the post again. MMP is an absolute blessing. MMP means that truly democratic parties like the Greens can get significant support and grow to be a major party as the Greens have done in Germany. You know, the, Green, the Greens hold the prime minister role in several states that are larger than New Zealand and Germany, and you can see the impact of that. But isn't it partly because they've they've agreed to join with the centre-right party in some cases? No, no. And we don't have enough time to get into it, but I'd be, I'd be happy to talk you through what happened in Baden-Württemberg and, and in Berlin. Um, but, um, look, MMP is essential. If, if you don't have MMP, you end up with the UK or the United States, you end up with the Trump in, you know, in charge of one of your major parties. Um, so thank God we have MMP uh, and we have a diversity of parties. We, the Greens have been arguing to reform our electoral system and to drop the threshold, which make it easier for smaller parties to get in. So, you know, we will continue to do that. Um, and I do understand young people's frustration. I mean, I've felt it myself and I do feel despair at times. And yet the only thing that's ever made real change is people organizing and being patient. You know, some of the, the biggest changes in the world happen against the odds because they happen against the forces of power because ordinary, committed, caring people 
stuck to their values and stuck with the organizing and eventually they prevailed and they won and we will win this and we can we're so close we're so close Julianne Genta there, um, the uh, spokeswoman for transport and infrastructure for the Greens and the former associate transport minister in the 2017 to 2020 government. Thank you very much. Thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.